0: welcome to a fun episode you of course know the three faces in front of you right now it's a bit of an ldp love fest if i'm frank this is uh three of the most famous people and the most amazing people that i know oh my goodness i just called myself famous that's terrible Come, help me guys introduce yourselves in a sentence who are you mr damien Curry? Uh, Damien Currie, now I'm the
1: Liberal Democrats uh, candidate for the Brisbane Western seat of Ryan in, uh, mm. in the House of Representatives campaign. And of
0: course, Damien Currie has been on our network for the longest time, running a show called The Other Side Australia and is a crisis management expert from Asia. You saw Hong Kong before the Great Fall. Sorry to hear about that, mate.
1: Yeah, it's very sad. And uh, I, I see parallels from afar. In Australia. You know, it's probably not as intense as it was in Hong Kong, but you can certainly see those little, little signs appearing. So come, come, I, come I, to Victoria, I come concern. to
2: Victoria, and then tell me it's not as intense.
0: Yeah, I've been. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, someone on the front line of what's been happening in the state of Victoria, which has been at the pointy end, along with Canada, I'd say. Special mention to those in Quebec uh, is Tofa Field. Who are you, Mister Field?
2: Uh, I'm Tofa Field. I think that sums it up, doesn't it? Um, no, I am a 12-year political commenta- commentary veteran. I was doing a political commentary freelance online before it was cool. Um, I found myself on the front lines of the fight against the madness in Melbourne, and I am the director of Battleground Melbourne, now an international multi-award winning documentary. And I'm now running as the lead Senate candidate for the Liberal Democratic Party in Tasmania. Mm.
0: Uh, yes, of course. Tofa has been doing this for three, four, five, ten times as long as the rest of us. So respect where it's due. Well done, my friend. Hey, can we start with a bit of uh, this transition between? I don't want to say influences, but you know, we're known online. We do these videos, don't we, all three of us? And now mm-hmm. you guys. I haven't taken the leap, but you've both taken the leap into politics. So I'll start with a curly question for Tofa Field. Tofa Field, we have made fun of and uh, and uh, expressed our distaste for politicians who are parachuted into seats because they go somewhere where they don't even live. Aren't you doing the same thing, parachuting yourself into Tassie?
2: Well, first of all, if you go back through my history, you will only find a relatively gentle observation on that topic. It's never something that I've been particularly averse to. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's something that's actually a lot more common than people realise. It happens all the time. Um, And in in the case of state elections and in the case of local council elections, I think it's a valid criticism because they are dealing with roads and hospitals and schools and, and the genuine local stuff. And if you don't know the local community, the attitudes and how things are going, then you're not really in a position to represent people very well. When we're talking federally and especially federal. Yeah. Well,
0: Oh, he's You're broken up there. No, I thought you were broken up. I thought we lost you. So this is going to be quite difficult, everyone, because a three-person okay. Zoom. I've never, never done it before. But hey, um, so Tofit, can I test that? What you just said, Christina Keneally, I guess it's not you, and maybe yeah. it's more of a sky phenomenon. Christina Keneally parachuting into a southwestern Sydney seat, and there's a bunch of Labor Party candidates now who are standing for electorates in the west of Melbourne, but are live in the east in one turn. <laughs> um, are we mm-hmm. equally as forgiving for that kind of parachuting behaviour?
2: Look, I've never been particularly harsh on this. This is not this is not something that gets a bee in my bonnet to be quite honest. Um I- you know, so, so let me address it at, as it directly affects me, because I am being parachuted into Tasmania, as, as the pundits, as Sky News would describe it. Uh, and so let me address that criticism. I, I have some Tasmanians say, well, I can't vote for you because you're not a Tasmanian. Mm-hmm. I have my serious answer and I have my flippant answer. Let me give you the serious answer first. The serious answer is, as I was saying before, if I was lo- running for local government or for state government, I'd, I'd actually agree. And even for the lower house where you have one representative that represents a geographic area. I would actually agree. But in the federal Senate, we have a proportional system where every state has 12 senators, and their job is actually to represent ideas, not geographies. Hmm. I am running to be the senator that stands up for those Tasmanians that want less government and more freedom. And that's an idea that can (laughs) translate from one state to another without me having to have the right coloured dirt on my feet.
0: Uh Aha, Well said. So, sorry, Damien, to keep you out for a second. I just want to press this for a second. All right. So, wouldn't I'm wondering, wouldn't you have had more success if you did this in Victoria, Turf? Because you're well loved and well known in Victoria.
2: Victoria already had um, David Limbrick as their lead Senate candidate for Liberal Democrats. I was offered, by the way, the lead Senate position for a different freedom-friendly minor party, and I knocked him back. So, I I could have run in Victoria as the lead Senate candidate for someone who is for a party that is in the running. They're they're in there.
0: Can you tell us Uh, who that is?
2: Uh, I am not- choosing not to. I'm okay. choosing not to.
0: Cuz I during this chat I'd love to get your you both of your opinion on the kerfuffle with the UA, the falling out like UAP in one nation there's been some preference issues there. Um Damien.
2: Storm in a teacup. Yeah,
0: okay. Storm in a skip, okay. Maybe it is. I I just got on Twitter this week. Maybe that's the problem. I I'm feeling, I'm feeling <laughs> a bit I'm on Twitter now. Uh, yeah, that's Look you <laughs> up there. What's going on in your world, Damien? You're running in the seat that you actually live in. That's uh, for for a lower house seat, though, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. The electorate of Ryan, which is uh, Brisbane's West, and uh, I live in one of the suburbs in Brisbane's West, and uh, have lived here, you know, for, for quite a quite a while um, prior to when I came back from overseas. So. Um, it's, it's it's been in my family, this area for quite some time. But uh, again, you know, I agree with Topher 100%. I've got a guy that I'm running against here who's um, the LNP incumbent. And his whole campaign, he's an ex councillor, and his whole campaign is local, 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 this, local, that, roads, this, roads, that. When do we get to the point where we start having a conversation about Australia and we talk about vision when we talk about big federal issues? We yeah. need the right-minded people in our parliament to have the right sorts of conversations about the big issues that people are concerned about, about ideological issues, about the direction that this country is going. And that's where the major conservative party, the liberal national party in Queensland and the liberal party and the national party in other parts of Australia, I think has just lost its, lost its base, lost its focus, lost its value set. Um, And they're just a, you know, party of polls now. So, um, you know, that's why I'm running because we need a proper Liberal Party, a, a, a classical Liberal Party, and that's my value set. As everyone knows, from you know eighteen months of uh, of stuff online that I've been doing with with you, and and uh, you know I, I I haven't I stand by my values. I'm running on my values. Um, the other thing I think, Matt, is we need people who've got more life experience. There are too many people in the Australian Parliament who have come from the labor side, who've just worked in unions or they've worked in, you know, labor related roles, party related roles, or they come from the liberal side and they've grown up through that young liberals and they've got this sort of entitlement sense and the young liberals grow up into older liberals and that's a very closed shop. And there are some great people uh, in that group, but there is this idea that politics is a career and I have a real problem with that. Um, Politics is not a career, politics is service and uh, you need to know how the world works and how it operates. So you need to have had a job or a business outside yeah. of that sort of governmental, industry association, union, uh, political party sort of environment to really know how things tick. And, and, and I
2: think that's that we're lacking people like that in our parliament. For the avoidance of doubt, Liberal Party, being a political staffer does not qualify as a job outside of politics, all right? No.
0: Tell your people to
2: go and get some real world experience before they get it.
0: Okay. So gentlemen, I've interviewed uh, minor freedom-friendly minor party candidates, three on air and maybe five or six off air who haven't aired. And what you're saying is true in terms of not wanting to have these political hacks and they've just been staffers and Daniel Andrews' resume. But when I interview these people, nearly all of them, you guys are the exception the rest of them are they don't really know what they're talking about and it's nice that they have real life experience but it i find it so difficult to vote for them and a lot of my viewers are saying really that they watch and go really like you didn't even know what he was talking about so i'm not sure that's just the solution to put every man and his dog in parliament either we need informed people like you two and you're rare that's
2: what, i don't know that's what that's not what either of us are saying. It's not about every man and his dog. You still mm. want the cream to rise to the top. And I'll let you and, and the, the voters of Tasmania decide whether that means me or whether it doesn't. But you, you, we're not just talking about grabbing somebody, yanking somebody off the street and stuffing them into Canberra. What we're talking about is people that really have that experience. They have run a business. They have worked in a job. Uh, they have had some sort of life experience um, you know, I wouldn't be averse to a minimum age on on federal politicians, to be honest. So there's not many areas where I'd be happy to see an increase in regulation. But honestly, uh, federal politics is one of those one of those areas where, where I wouldn't be against it. Um, and to say, look, yeah, come back when you're 50. Like, okay, great, you're up and comer, you're promising. We like what you. We like the cut of your jib. Come back when you're 50. Um, now, we don't have that. So I'm running as a 40 year old, even though I, I, I suspect that I, you know, even I might be a little bit undercooked at this point in time, but I'll let the voters decide that. Um, but no, we're not talking about grabbing any old person. We're still talking about finding the best people that are willing to do the job, but people that have real world life experience.
0: But guys, that's not happening because I, it's mainly a feature of the UAP party, but it's, I've also seen it in the LDP, unfortunately. I like the LDP. And I've seen it in Pauline Hansen, Hansen's One Nation party. They seem to be obsessed with filling the maximum number of candidates across the maximum number of seats. Why is that? Well, we, we actually haven't done that, Matt. We're running um, a selective
1: number of candidates across selective seats. Uh, the, I know that Pauline Hansen's One Nation and Clive Palmer have both you know, tried to maximise it. That has something to do, I think, with, um, you know, exposure and getting their Senate numbers up, I guess. And also uh, there's a, you know, there's the financial aspect of that as well, where if you get a certain percentage of the vote, you get a certain number of, you get $2.91 per vote or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so they probably, a, you know, there might be some, uh, I'm not really up to date with those, the detail fighter details on that stuff, but we're not doing that. The lib So hang on, where, well, you
0: just said before you go on about LDP, you said 291 or whatever it is per vote. So yeah. even if you lose, say, say uh, Clive Palmer runs 150 candidates, or whatever it is, mm. and he gets a bunch of votes, but only one get in, but he's going to be paid mm. for the other 149 who collected a bunch of votes.
1: Uh, there's a catch. You've got to get 4% of the vote, the primary vote. So you can't, that prevents people from being able the to run these sort of, you know, random candidates. So, uh, you know, it's it's still uh, you know you're still watching your pennies and you're spending because it's a there's a risk right, um, right. so you've got to try and and uh, and balance that out but I do think and it's Liberal, Liberal Democrats policy by the way to eliminate this um, payment to political parties because it's another thing that serves the interests of the major parties uh, because the major parties and incumbents just get richer and richer every election um, because they're getting this this payment and I don't think a lot of people realize that that's the way the system
2: works but it, it, I certainly didn't before I got into it. I want to add one more thing to the list that Damien gave there of all the reasons why some parties love to run as many candidates as possible. Uh, And that is the preferencing deals. And and I need to be clear, parties no longer preference other parties directly, but they do negotiate over where they put each other on their how to vote cards, which you as a voter can then decide if you want to follow it or not. Um, And if you're not running candidates in every seat, it weakens your bargaining position when it comes to those conversations as well. So there's a number of incentives in the system that encourage parties to run as many candidates as they can. And what that leads to is what you're observing, Matt, where there are people who really aren't ready Um, people who, as much as they may have some wonderful real-world experience, and they may be wonderful people to their families and and wonderful in so many different ways, they're not equipped with the necessary skill set, the toolbox, to be able to be an effective politician. And, uh, you know, without wanting to single anybody out, um, there there are some that you just look at and go, if you were actually sent to Canberra, you would get eaten alive. Yes. You really would. You would just get eaten alive. There's no point sugarcoating that. We can all see it. However, yeah. The other look, up, I'm I'm the 55 other-
1: 55 years old, right? And I have, you know, a career behind me, um, two careers. You know, what in the media mm-hmm. for 13 years, and then, uh, you know, I got into the corporate world for 20 years. I've worked across, you know, Asia and different countries. I've had a lot of life experience. But I've been put through the rigors of having to run a small business, look after staff, worry about whether I'm going to be able to make payroll, you know, making sure that the revenue is coming in, but also running a, a, an American corporation in a, uh, you know, in, a, in an Asian country, running a division, a country a division of that. And you go through all this management training and you get stuff beaten out of you and you know you, you can't be um you can't be too arrogant because they'll you know someone will take you down you've got to have good listening skills you know all the stuff that i didn't, wasn't born with wasn't very good at that i had to you know that i know now and i i think of that skill set and i think i want to see other people in my government who have those skills or are better than me um and and i you know i've i don't think we're getting the right people to the top of these parties i think the parties are closed shops If anybody goes towards one of the major parties and has a sort of CV uh, that that looks good and they've got a really good experience and they would make a great politician, the major parties are threatened, right? Because the incumbents all want to hold on to their little turf. So Mm. you do get pushed out. And that's why we've got to start looking at minor parties and we've got to start, uh, you know, selecting our candidates and who... So I would urge everybody to look at your House of Representatives list of candidates and see if you can work out what their CVs are. And, and see if you think they've got the skill set and the mix to be a really good um, representative for you in government and will be able to handle the rigors of government and the leadership and the management and all the things that go along with it. Because it's not easy, you know, and and I would be very happy to see people much more talented and, and capable than me out there as well. Um, more of them, I mean, there are certainly some of them in there already, but Um, Yeah, I'd like to see a lot more of them. And we're just not getting that talent up through the ranks in the in the major parties. And so we need to look at the minors and, and uh, I guess at the Lib Dems, we're trying to we're trying to get people who've got we have a certain standard, we're not just putting a a warm body in every seat. Mm -hmm. We're taking a very, very uh, considered and measured approach to it. That's why we got TOFA, you know,
2: because, you know, (laughs) I would also add there's a degree in which people, they they use a different lens when they look at the minor parties. And what they do, the lens, they look at the major parties and they immediately ask themselves, well, which one is less bad? Out of Liberal and Labor, which one's less bad? And they will overlook a multitude of sins because, oh, but they're less bad. But then when they look at the minor parties, they put on a completely different lens and they're looking for perfection. And they're saying, well, I agree on this and on this and on this. And I really like that. I think that's fantastic. Oh, but there's that one thing. And oh, oh, no, I just can't agree with that. And if they took that approach to the major parties, they'd be out there with pitchforks in front of Parliament House right now. Right. But they don't. There's this weird lens that they use. Um, so the focus for us, as as the minor parties, is is a few different things. Number one, we need to actually show that there is support behind us and momentum behind us, and I believe this election will show that very very clearly. Mm. But then we need to earn the trust of the Australian people as a viable alternative, and that's about the performance of those few people who do get lucky and do get elected in this election. And I would I would hold up someone like David Limbrick as a perfect example of what that looks like. He is going to do very well in this election as he runs yes. for the Senate. Why? Mm-hmm. Because of the quality of his work and his courage and the way he stood up for Victorian people during the pandemic in a way that no other politician at the time had the guts to do. He earned the trust of the Australian people and in so doing... He's improved the brand value, not only of the Liberal Democrats, but of everyone that stands for freedom and is running for politics. So I I think this is an area where we can really build momentum. And as we get some really good people uh, into positions like the Senate, hopefully at this election, and they start to do good things the trust of the Australian people will be earned more and more. And that lens that they look at us with will start to shift. Then they'll start to look at us the same way as they look at the major parties. And at that point, that's when I think they're going to realize that we are so much better. Mm. Absolutely. What kind, of, yeah. what kind of
0: result are you guys uh, looking for? Not just for your party, but across the board, we know there's this major shift towards the miners and the independents. What has mm. it traditionally been? Has it been like three to 6%, something like that before? Per party, between all- the how how much of the vote are they getting? So your Liberal and Labor will usually get like a forty percent, thirty five percent, forty percent primary vote, right? Mm, each, mm. each, yeah. yeah. So what are the
2: minus- often, often UAP, One Nation, uh, Liberal Democrats are often uh, you know, often well actually pretty much always below three and a half percent, and often below two percent each. Uh, so historically, it's been very. It's time to get and, your marbles
1: out, Topher. Get the marbles yeah, out. Right.
2: Yeah. Um, you'll see many. You'll see many, many instances of, of these parties getting less than one percent. Um, I I think there is a significant move on, I think there is a significant shift. Not only has the support for these parties increased, but due to my efforts and the efforts of many others, the understanding of how preferences has improved. And therefore, instead of people voting for these parties individually, they're now actually preferencing each other correctly or or will preference each other correctly. What I think we're gonna see, Matt, is instead of the balance of power being held exclusively by the Greens, which has been the case for most of the last 30 years, Yes, we're going to see the balance of power now being shared between the Greens and others as of this election. And then as of the following election in another roughly three years, I think we will see the Greens replaced as the balance of power party. Now, that, that that may be at the expense of Green senators, or they may actually still have the same number of senators. They may be picking up the fifth seat. But there will be an equal number of freedom-friendly senators that have picked up the sixth seat in six states and then done it again in a following election, adding up to 12 senators. And I think that that will come largely at the expense of the majors. Yeah. So I, I I do actually believe that this election is the beginning of a major shift in Australian politics. And I think that if not at this election, then in the following election, we can see the freedom-friendly minor parties holding the balance of power in the Senate and basically doing to the federal government what the Greens have done for the last 30 years, but going in the opposite direction.
0: How is that possible, Tuff? Because around the world, I haven't seen... That sounds amazing to me, that, that little future you've laid out for us. I haven't seen it happen anywhere. I've seen a cultural slide to the left. I've seen conservatives lay down their arms and just give up. And I've seen Greta Thunberg and everyone take over AOC. What you've described... Okay. So
2: there, there are two things that, I, that, that give me the reason for that optimism. Number one, I've said for years, literally for 12 years, I've been saying the problem with politics is people don't care about it until it hurts them. Yeah. We've seen in Victoria, especially people being hurt by politics in unprecedented numbers at at a depth that has never been seen before in most countries of the world, let alone in the Western world. So there are more people fired up and passionate. And even if you're not in Victoria, people know people in Victoria. They've seen what happened. They've tasted little bits of it themselves. And there's a lot of people more fired up than we've ever seen before. Mm. The second part is this is the beauty of the Australian preferential system. Take for example the American presidential system where it's first you you get one vote you just vote for that person if they get knocked out too bad how sad that system basically guarantees that they will only ever have two major parties and no 3rd party will ever be a serious contender right. because voting for the third party means not voting for the one of the big two which means it's almost certain that your vote is a wasted vote right. in the Australian system there's no such thing as a wasted vote right. now that's relatively rare around the world you look at the French system, you look at the American system, you look at the systems that we see all over the world. Um, you've both frozen there, so I hope you can still hear me. Yes. Um, you look at the systems that, that we can see all over the world. The Australian one, in my opinion, is a brilliant system. And the way that the preferential system works and, and the outcome of it is it allows people to vote for that micro party or that minor party that they really, really like and then hand their preference to the lesser of two evils and that gives them permission to vote for that micro party, to vote for that minor party in a way that doesn't happen in the American system, doesn't happen in the French system. So the combination of those two things, people have been hurt and our system actually was designed for this purpose. You put those two together and I think we're in for a really exciting election.
1: Yeah, and I think this speaks also, Tofa, to the fact that the, the coverage of the election has been just atrocious, um well very ordinary anyway um not that i'm looking at the mainstream media very much for decent coverage these days but the main story has been missed the story isn't elbows memory or you know scomo's ukulele prowess um it's not who will be prime minister it's who will hold the balance of power this time um because we've got a third of Australians saying that they're completely fed up with the major parties they are not going to vote for a major party first Um, and that number is increasing as we move closer and closer to the election i believe uh that that, you know, you've got they're looking for, for good alternatives. So they're looking at the other parties and the, the, the minor parties, and they're looking at hopefully they're looking at the Lib Dems and saying there's a sensible, balanced alternative that I can vote for. Um, but I think this mm-hmm. is the election where ordinary Australians, you know, the ones who don't blabbering on um, <laughs> in the media or in social media like we do, uh, are going to send a very, very big message to the establishment. And um uh, my concern at this election actually is that the more established, as, as Tophie just said, the more established alternative party, the Greens, um, although they're not a minor party anymore because they pull 20% plus in most capital cities, uh, electorates, they're, they're probably going to get a number of candidates across the line. And we're, we're likely to see them hold the balance of power, I think. And, and that to me is, is pretty terrifying. Um, and that's why I'm running, is to try to prevent that. Failing preventing that, I agree with you guys that we're probably going to see uh, the Australian public realize over that three, the next three years that, holy cow, these Greens are not, they're not, this is not a normal party. We shouldn't be treating the Greens as a normal and viable alternative uh, and then mocking, you know, the old white men uh running in the in the other which is really how the media cover it right they every time they put craig kelly or clive palmer or pauline hansen on they're derisive and they're you know a little bit you know it's them it's them but when the greens come on it's like oh you know i better virtue seal i better not step foot in the wrong place any in terms of any kind of identity politics and you listen to what comes out of marine faruki's mouth i mean it's diabolical it's not it's not bad it's
2: appalling. And it's it's destructive of our culture. We we need to be actively rebranding the Greens. The Greens uh, live off the back of this myth that they are the environmental party. Uh, And arguably, maybe that was true in the 1990s. What they are today in 2022 is the anti-human party. Mm. They've made the mistake of conflating uh, they assume that environmental outcomes must come at the expense of, you know, capitalists, that capitalism and the environment are somehow diametrically opposed. And if you accept that assumption, then there, there becomes this convenient intellectual shorthand where instead of having to fight for the environment by actually doing good things for the environment and measuring the results, instead, if you can just show that you've hurt capitalism and it's a zero-sum game between capitalism and the environment, then if you've hurt capitalism, you must have done something good for the environment. And as much as that might sound like a really flippant and shallow analysis, if you look at their policies today, they are more focused on hurting capitalism than they are on helping the environment. And Because in their mind, there isn't a difference between those two things. They've actually genuinely, and I'm not saying this just as a throwaway line, they have genuinely become an anti-human party.
1: And it's not a myth either. I'd go further, Topher, and say it's a lie because there's an intentional, deliberate mm-hmm. lying going on that they're painting themselves deliberately as a Green Party. And yet, mm-hmm. you know, they are a socialist party. We've heard the watermelon analogy a million times, but it's, it's like a Trojan horse. You know, here we are coming in as this wonderful environmental party, touchy-feely, isn't it great? And then underneath uh, is this heavy, heavy socialist agenda. And I'm not beating that up. If you listen to Maureen Faruqi. She said mm-hmm. in our parliament that until we cannot fix the climate, until we tear down the system, the capitalist system that supports it. So you can't get any more anti-capitalist, socialist, or communist even than that. So, you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's straight yeah. from the mouth of, of the um, yeah. of the politicians concerned. And yet we yeah. the media cover them like they're a normal, rational group to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. And then people think, oh, Sorry. you know. Yeah. Yes, the the point you. of
2: this, because I can see your face, Matt, and you're waiting. You're like, okay, we're going down a rabbit hole. Let me let me bring it back to what matters right now. Well, can the I? Can I? This is-
0: I just want to say I'm, I'm deliberately keeping a bit quiet because I like to hear you guys thrash this out. It's very good content. Mm. Okay, keep going.
2: Thank you. The the reason why this matters is because for the last thirty years we've had the Australian Greens that founded in 1992 on the back of the Tasmanian United Front, which went from 72 to 92 we've seen the Australian Greens holding the balance of power in the Senate most of the time, not all, but most of the time. What that means is anytime the Liberal or Labor Prime Minister wanted to pass legislation, they had to negotiate with these guys and girls. And they're pretty kooky, they're pretty out there. You wanna know why Australian politics has gone so far left it's and so far towards socialism? It's because every government almost has had to negotiate with these nut jobs in order to get anything passed. Now, what if instead, They had to negotiate with people who were committed to the ideals of freedom, of small government, of greater freedom, of more individual expression, the ability to make your own decisions and endure your own consequences. What if that was the philosophy of the people that successive prime ministers had to negotiate within when they wanted to to pass legislation? We could literally reverse the entire direction of this country just off the back of changing a few Senate positions from being Greens held to being held by freedom-friendly minor party representatives. And that's exactly what we have the opportunity to do in not even, what is it now, 12 days' time.
1: And House of Representatives positions, I might say. And I, I, you know, it's time. It's time. And that's why it's so important that people get out and vote. Um, if you hold these views if you care about this country if you think we've gone too far to the left uh, and if you want to just have a, a different perspective it's a big change we've got to make it's a cultural change it's a lens change as as um you know uh, josh would say matt you know it's a worldview shift right we've got to have a complete worldview shift uh we, we are looking at the world i had a debate tonight with a friend of mine who's a very very senior reporter uh in in mainstream media i won't name any names okay but i sent him an email i said guys the way you're covering this election is just insane you're you're you know it's it's you're not paying attention to the massive you're talking about all this garbage with elbow and scomo and you're not paying attention to this massive shift that's culturally occurring and i don't want you to have a reputation disaster like you had in 2019 when everyone said oh you know scomo's gone scomo's gone then scomo won and everyone had egg Mm -hmm. on their face i said to him you know let's get this right this time um and he came back and he said, "Well, we're covering the, the teal party. We're covering the te- uh, teal party. I called it. Sorry, the teal independents. They to are about. a party. They're acting yeah. like a party, but they're they're presenting as 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 independents, and they are <laughs> fake independents. Josh Frydenberg's right. Um, but they are the Greens' threat too. Greens too. They are also a socialist group, right? Then they're all they're a bit about climate. Obviously, they're backed by Climate Two Hundred and Simon that's Holmes at Court, but they are also very very identity politics driven and very left and." and inner-city women, basically. There's very few men candidates. I don't think there are any of um, So, you know, we've got this um, uh, situation where you've got these these two Greens parties, effectively, and, and you say to a journalist, why aren't you covering the minor parties? And it's like, well, we are. We're covering this mob. And I wrote back and I said to him, you know, you're covering them because the lens through which you're looking as somebody who's an inner city professional is the inner city professional lens, but you're not looking at the other parties. When you cover Clive or when you cover Pauline or when you cover Campbell, it's a bit of a giggle, you know, uh, probably mm-hmm. not so much Campbell, but uh, because he's got that, at least he was a premier and a, and a Lord mayor. And he's got that degree of credibility there, but they give the guy a hard time still, they still treat him like he's a little bit out there and he's not. So that's how far left the culture shifted. And we've got to correct that. And the only way we're going to be able to correct that is to chip, 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 chip away. The number, I don't know how you've had this, tofer, but I've had a lot of people come up and say, uh, well, what can you, what are you going to be able to do? What are you going to be able to do as a minor party? Well, a heck of a lot, actually. We're already doing it. Just having these conversations, just putting, I mean, I did a, I did a debate the other night um, with the Greens and, I, and, and the major parties. And. I was the only one saying to the green, you know, w- w- why are you rejecting nuclear as an option, as a viable option? I mean, we, we should at least look at it. Yeah. There are 440 nuclear power plants around the world. You know, we've got 55 new ones being built in Asia right now. China's going to have a heap of them. France runs its power off them. America's got 100. Britain's building eight more. We are the best geographically, you know, geological uh, environment for it, and we don't have any uh, because of the greens. Yeah. And yet they're telling us that the climate emergency is here. And then there's you've got thorium, uh, as well as uranium, now these these thorium salt reactors that are, you know, very very easy to put together, a lot quicker to build, and and less waste, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, having that conversation at that forum has led to, and I've heard it now, the Greens coming, mm-hmm. the Greens were coming up to me and saying, yeah, maybe we do need to look at nuclear, and people are having conversations about that with the major parties now. So, mm-hmm.
0: just getting that stuff in there, just just having a go is important. So, so don't don't, don't underestimate did... what can be done. Gentlemen, I think you are correct. Uh, if you look at how we've been held hostage, various <clears throat> prime ministers over the years to small voices that have dragged the parties left, especially the Liberal Party. Uh, perhaps we do underestimate what we can achieve with uh, just a few senators holding a balance of power. But let me go to the, the teal phenomenon uh, and more broadly, this misanthropic age we live in, this human-hating kind of trend culturally. Because when we talk about the potential for freedom-friendly mining parties to have that balance of power and over the next couple of elections drag our um, policy the other way, I'm wondering how much that will work when at the end of the day our culture seems to be going more left. I mean, there's... There's, um, you know, uh, what's his name? Tim Wilson is fighting off Zoe Daniel from the left. Uh, Josh Frydenberg is fighting off Monique Ryan from the left. Uh, Wentworth, uh, Dave Sharma is fighting off uh, Allegra Spender, I think it is. Uh, isn't it's is my view that that is representative of a large a scary large part of our culture because a lot of us who are sticking to more classical principles like freedom and others, other principles, were most horrified these past two years to discover that yes, our politicians are terrible, but a lot of our fellow citizens are as well. So how do we reconcile that? The culture of the people around us
2: is going yeah. left as well. I, I think you're, I think you're misinterpreting some of the some of the signs there. Um, in, in the television world, and Damien, you would have come across this. Uh, in the broadcast world, they're obsessed with the broad, the uh, the viewer numbers, you know. And oh, this latest show just debuted, and they got a million dollars in there, in their premiere. Uh, sorry, a million viewers for their premiere show, and then the other competitive show only had three hundred thousand viewers, and absolutely you know, destroyed them in the ratings. Blah 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 blah. And they're watching this every single week, much like politicians are looking at um, at polls and everything all the time. But what I observed as I worked in that industry for a number of years was that there could be 23 million people missing from the numbers, right? There are 25 and a half million people in Australia. And and here are all these ratings agencies obsessing over, oh, well, this this, this show went up by 50,000, that show went down by 100,000. But there's 23 million people that are tuned out. They just don't give a rat's. they're not even watching, right? Now, politics is a similar thing. What's happened, the people with the biggest ax to grind have been the most active politically. Think about who who was attracted to politics. Is it the neighbour that minds their own business, works their job, looks after their family, goes on holidays, blah, blah, blah? Or is it the neighbour that's sticking his nose over your fence to see whether you've done anything wrong recently, right? It's the busybodies. It's the sticky beaks. It's the people with an axe to grind. Now, they are naturally of the left in politics. They are the ones who primarily want to make everybody else live the way that they approve of. That's really the criteria for why. Why would you want to get into politics? Because you want to tell other people how to live. And people on our side of politics, people in favor of freedom don't want to tell other people how to live. So we're not naturally attracted to politics. What's happening right now now is, and I'm hearing it literally, I I had this conversation just yesterday with someone, them, uh, people like you and I going, I get it now. They're never going to leave me alone. I I just want to be left alone. That's all I want. And I want to leave everybody else alone. But I get it now, they are never going to leave me alone. And if that's the case, then I'm gonna get off my ass and I'm gonna get into this fight and I'm gonna be so bloody minded and so effective in this fight that they will come to rue the day they bullied me into getting off my ass. And that's what's happening now, bit by bit. We're seeing the very, very beginning of that phenomenon. More and more grumpy, mostly men uh, and many Christians. <laughs> the old men. Uh, I think Christians are overrepresented in this movement who are sitting there going, I get it. You're never going to leave me alone. And this is, this is the crux of it. And I said this at the Australian Christian Lobby event in Launceston the other day. I said, the problem that we've got is that the government is trying to replace God. The government is trying to play the role of God in our lives. And it's only now, literally as a, as a result of the last two years in Australia, that we are seeing a groundswell of Australians standing up and going, ah, no, you don't. You ain't God. So what's happening, in my opinion, is now a collision the left and and the social progressives, et cetera, kind of have stolen the march. They were already involved in politics. They were already meddling in other people's lives. So they've got the first mover advantage. But the pushback is coming, and it's coming fast. and and i I think that this election is going to be very difficult, a little bit like after Trump won the presidential election in in two thousand and must have been sixteen, 16 I think yeah. um, and and putting aside whether that was a good or a bad thing. The exploding heads and the difficulty with which the chattering classes had to try and reconcile that reality with their expectations and their friendship groups and what they thought they knew about the world. I think we're about to see a real slap in the face for a lot of know-it-alls, a lot of political commentators, a lot of the chattering class in Australia and the political class in Australia who thought they understood what was going on. And then all of a sudden the numbers are going to tell them a very different story and we're going to have the fun of watching them trying to reconcile that okay, afterwards.
0: Okay, so this is politically, but what about to my question about culture? Do you feel that our culture is similar? Because you're describing to me that there's just a, a majority of disenfranchised voters who have not been represented. No, no, no.
2: no. So don't misunderstand me. Uh, there's, there's two things that you need to know. Uh, every culture breeds its own counterculture and the revolution always eats its own. Those are two separate ideas, but when you understand them in concert with each other, this becomes a really powerful way of observing and predicting massive cultural shifts before they happen. The, the, every culture breeds its own counterculture. When you have, if you have a family that's a goody two shoes, Bible believing family, blah, 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 what are the kids going to do? They're going to rebel. Mm -hmm. We know statistically right now that the millennial generation are having less sex, they're doing less drugs, they're studying Mm -hmm. harder and getting jobs and saving and being more financially responsible than either of the two generations before them. Mm -hmm. Why? That's their form of rebellion. That is the counterculture that they are now engaging in against the culture that they were given. Every culture breeds its own counterculture. What we're seeing now is a rapid rise of incredibly conservative, serious-minded people um, who are are rejecting a lot of this work. In in Gen Z, but but also a lot of people who are older. Yeah, but also a lot of people who are older that are extracting themselves from that culture and going, oh, hang on, I was in that culture, and now I reject it. The other thing to keep in mind is the other half of that statement, the revolution always eats its own. Look at Martina Navratilova. Okay, She was an openly gay tennis player, winning world championships, the darling of the left for a long time. She's now been basically deplatformed and unpersoned because she didn't have the right opinion about transgender people. We see that again with uh, Helen Caldicott and a whole bunch of these other heroes of the feminist world where they're now being eaten by the revolution that they championed for decades. When those two things start to happen at the same time, when the revolution begins to eat its own and the counterculture begins to take effect, you know that the end of a movement is is nigh. And I believe that that's exactly where we are because we're watching both of those phenomena layered on top of each other.
1: But I, I... Hope that Topa's right, but I tend to lean more that that you, Matt, might, might be might be right, and we might have to go through that three years of hell for what Topa's saying to take effect. But I
2: hope I'm wrong. I hope Topa's right, um, and and it's great I, to hear somebody to be talking clear, about. I'm, I'm that, not though. saying it's. I, I'm talking multi-decadal trends. It may be. It may take another yeah. ten years ah, for right. the current okay. prevailing yeah. culture to properly crumble. I'm not yeah. saying it's imminent, no. but I'm saying okay. we're at the tail end of this madness. And the counterculture, yeah. the, the combination of the counterculture growing up and the revolution eating its own means at the end of that movement, where I think we're in the last decade of that movement.
1: I had an interesting experience this morning, actually, on the first uh, we're recording this on the first day of polling, pre-polling, and I mm. uh, went out this morning and uh, the, there was a, a massive, the Labor Party and the Liberal Party had massive tents up, uh, gazebo type tents, and um, the Greens hadn't got theirs there yet, right? And I don't have one, but I have a big sign, so I put my big sign up, and then I I put a chair out for the woman that was um, handing out how to vote cards for me because I had to rush to another polling booth, and I put the chair out, and on this slab of concrete that was like you know probably the size of two car park two two car parking spaces like a driveway, and um and the Greens said oh, oh that, that, that that's where our gazebo is going, like that, uh, and they'd already said to me can you move one of your signs that you don't put it in front of our sign like that and I thought gee the arrogance and the sense of entitlement and I said to them I said well can we share this space you know I'll take you take there's a dividing crack in the concrete and I said I'll stay on this side of that line you stay on that side of that line well our gazebo uh we don't know how big it is yet and I said you really I couldn't help myself I said you really do have quite a sense of entitlement don't you And from that point, the conversation degenerated into, you know, me being attacked for being, uh, uh, you know, talking down to women, which was bizarre. Um, There there was no more conversation about the issue or or about politics. It went to, when they ran out, it was the classic, you know, resort to calling the white male a sexist uh, or a racist. Yeah. And they're looking at me as... Probably looking at me as a, you know, half Lebanese Australian and thinking, well, we can't go the racist line with the brown guy. So we'll just go with the uh, we'll just go with the sexist thing. Um, and it cracks me up because, Tofi you were saying, you know, like the, the left will eat its own, you know, back in the 1980s and mm-hmm. right through my professional career up until when I came back to Australia till 2020. Um, I was very active in promoting women in business to leadership positions and making sure that we had a reasonable representation. I didn't buy the, the idea that it has to be 50% because I don't believe in that. I think people have choice. And, but I think if you're under 20%, 25%, you might want to have a look at what, you know, you might have a bit of a bias going on. But there are other factors at play. Mm. It's multifactorial, as Jordan Peterson often tells us. Um, mm. And I'm even in, you know, Tracy Spicer um, wrote a book you know we dated briefly at university she wrote a book about 10 years ago uh in which she outs me as a as a an early feminist you know a guy who was a feminist before it was cool to be a feminist so i've got that in print from tracy, tracy spicer, spicer. <laughs> i don't think there's a higher authority in australian feminism um so you know uh and i was a bit of a gay rights campaigner. i was younger i worked in the media i did a lot of theater and i had a lot of gay gay friends and knew a lot of gay people and as a straight person i felt it was a good thing to do to kind of promote that we treat uh, gay people with respect, and I have gay conservative friends now who mm. are utterly appalled at what's going on with the LGBTIQ thing. It's like you, they don't represent me; they're a left-wing group. It's a, and there's no community. There's a left-wing political yeah. community of identity politics oh. and neo-marxism around that, but it's not a sex not a sexuality yeah. community really. Um, and, and so yep. there are a lot of, you yeah, know, there are lots and lots of people, as you say, that the, 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 the left is eating itself, the cult is eating itself. And I, I do see that mm-hmm. happening. And I think you, that's why you're getting the shift of people like me and, and you know, Dave Rubin and, and those sorts of people who are traditionally socially concerned people on the left. You just want to see fairness and justice and, you know, real justice. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we're fighting against real threats in those days, mm-hmm. you know where cops were bashing gay people. You know, bogans yep. and neo-Nazis were going out bashing gay people and and, and people of different ethnicities. Um, but what the kid, these kids are playing with today, it's like, give me a break. Like, you know, how much of a victim do you want to be? Um, and it's just taking all of that yep. to the nth degree uh, and it has no credibility. And I think we will see the, I'm hoping a fast death, but I agree, it probably will be a slow death. And I think the only way we're going to get to see it is to put the spotlight on it and maybe a maybe a greens balance of power uh Oof. with a labor prime minister for a little while just disconnect uh, curry might just teach disconnect them, right now no might teach them <laughs> something but um Get but out. that's you know let's hope we don't have to go through that let's hope that the fruit that that out we wind up with a you know with a government that has a you know freedom freedom friendly minor party balance of power and that's what we're really voting for this time and that's what we've got to it's what the media should be focused on, but they're, but they're not.
0: Hey, gentlemen, can yeah. I ask you about two groups of the electorate? First of all, the unengaged, and then second of all, the protest vote. Uh, the unengaged, the reason why I'm displaying a bit of scepticism with some of the lovely things that I'm hearing from Toffa Field tonight is that the conversations I'm having constantly now with the tradies, I'm building a studio right now, the carpenters, the fridges, the carpet layers, just everybody... Not the carpet layers there today. You're a legend. The Because he watches. Uh, frid- uh, refrigeration, like aircon installers. installers. Uh, fridges. Yep. I've never heard of yeah. that. Yeah, fridges. Yeah, refrigerant professionals. Uh, in shops, hairdressers, by far, like 75% plus the conversations I'm having, they're so disengaged and even what you've touched on earlier, tofer about they're becoming more engaged now because of the, pri- the pressure they've been in. Can you guys just talk to me a bit about that disengaged population and especially the dispersion of that across Australia? Because I feel like, yes, Melbournians might be particularly engaged, but have you spoken to people in Perth? My God, they are drinking the Kool-Aid. So yeah. what do you think about this disengaged people and does it change across the nation?
2: Look, there's, there's a couple of things I wanna say. Firstly, you reckon maybe 75% of people are disengaged. Let's call it 80. Hell, let's call it 90. Mm. Let's say there's only 10% of the people after all of the the shit that's gone down are actually engaged. Mm. Um, I need about 4% of the vote to win a Senate seat. It's just how it is. If I get 4%, I'm good. So, uh, Mm. you know, 94 out of every 100 people you meet uh, could vote for somebody else down here in Tassie. And I can still get in because of the way the preferences are with the the agreements that we've got with where we are on other people's how to vote cards. Uh, The lower house is much more tricky. You need you need about 32 to 35 percent of the population to be voting for the mix of freedom friendly minor parties before you really end up in the running in the lower house. Um, But let's not forget, we are seeing some polls indicating that 30 percent or more of the Australian population have already decided they're not voting for a minor. Sorry, they're not voting for a major party and. That includes not voting for the Greens, depending on the poll. Each poll is different, but I've seen polls that put it at thirty percent plus another ten percent undecided. So there's forty percent there. What was the it other before, 60%, though? How does that compare to last? It's it's, it's never been like this. I, I can't quote the old numbers off the top of my head, yep. but it's never been like this. It's never okay. been like this. Typically, freedom-friendly minor parties, or as they are now, what mm-hmm. we're calling the freedom-friendly minor parties, and I think I might be responsible for that term. Actually, I didn't mean to be, but I think I might have been. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, you would see One Nation, 2.5%, UAP, 3%, Liberal Democrats, 1.5%. You know, you, you're talking a combined total of not even 10. 10. Now we're talking people People are seriously looking at us in ways they never did before. So we don't need a majority of people. I would also what? dispute somewhat your concern about people in Perth being disengaged. I was just, before this call, I was on a chat with Hoodie and John Lata. Hoodie is in Perth right now, and he has been astonished the level of engagement um he's getting invited from place to place to place he's speaking there's rallies coming up they're expected to get some pretty big crowds they are they are waking up pretty quickly the reason though matt why it doesn't feel like that is because you're in victoria and your networks are in victoria and in victoria we all found each other all the people on our side of the issue we found each other so we know that they're out there but the media aren't showing that we're there and you're not going to find us in you know, in other ways. So when you walk through or look into an unfamiliar environment where you don't have that personal network, you don't see people like you and me. We're not there. We're not represented on the media, et cetera. So you look into Perth and you go, oh, there's nothing happening over there. Well, actually there is. There's quite a lot happening. I'm discovering there is a lot happening here in Tassie. There is a lot going on okay. here in Tassie that I was unaware of and we should go.
0: That's very encouraging to hear. Uh, I take your point. You may be correct. I am basing, just so people know, I am basing it mainly on the amount of hate I get and the amount of hate that I get coming from the uh, Western Australia and uh, to a lesser extent, but Northern Territory, it feels like they are very disengaged, just swallowing Kool-Aid. But what do you think about this, Damien? the, The disengaged vote, we don't need to get them all on side.
1: No, you don't. And uh, I mean, I think with the House of Representatives, if I was to get, say, twenty to twenty-five percent primary vote, um, which is what the Greens got, um, and it might take a few elections to get there, that we would have, we would have that. Um, so it is only one in five people that you really need to put you down as as, as number one. Uh, I've never done this before, so I have no idea. The number crunches tell me that it's it's probably not going to get to that, maybe, but we, we, nobody knows this election. It's quite bizarre. Uh, in the Senate, it is a lot less. It's a little more in the Queensland calculations, I think, um, for, for for Campbell Newman to get through. And we've got a very interesting Senate race here, where we've got Pauline Hanson herself and Clive Palmer himself uh, up for, and, and Campbell and uh, Amanda Stoker from the Liberal National Party are really all going for the two seats that are currently held by Pauline and Amanda. Right. Uh, so we've got four people that are probably going to get into you know fighting for those two positions. So it is pretty competitive. Um, Campbell, of course, well, is the we'll best get, man for the job by far. Well, He's we'll experienced, and I think he will get in. I think mm. the people of Queensland love him. Um, the people that, that, that love him really love him. Uh, I'm getting about sort of, you know, 10 to 1 negatives on Campbell. And again, it's one of these narratives the media has been spinning for ages up here in Queensland uh, that's a complete myth and a complete lie that, you know, everybody hates Campbell Newman. No, that's been out a... by the Labor Party, and the I... Liberal Party have never defended him, and that's why, you know, people think that. So, yeah,
0: Damien, I'm getting a lot of hate for Campbell from regular discernible watches. They are very right. pro what you're talking about and right. I'm getting it too much. They're On what basis,
1: though? I've been mean, genuinely interested the to, to hear because the, there is a narrative that's been driven very hard for seven yep. years. And the guy hasn't defended himself because he's been off in business. Yep. And the LMP, you know, have sort of hid behind Campbell. And so they've, they've done the whole, well, we're not Campbell Newman. They haven't defended his legacy. So, well, so what, are people, what are people actually saying?
0: Yeah, I'll tell you, look, I'm interviewing him tomorrow and I'll ask him this question and see what he has. So he can speak for himself. But what people are concerned about is the authenticity. So the the real cornerstone is, of course, the anti-gathering, the anti-bikey laws. And now he's not standing for Pauline Hampton's One Nation. He's not standing for freedom, whatever, he, uh, some party. He's standing for the LDP. So these are the people who are one of the most critical of that kind of social engineering. Uh, so the concern is that uh he hasn't been tested on this front and they're saying look uh he's being op- it smells opportunistic and to be frank it does smell very opportunistic to me his pivot right. to the ldp well, and I- okay. I'm okay so him- let,
1: let me just ca- i mean let me let me counter those points okay because and i'm not speaking like a here i'm genuinely carrying these mm-hmm. points as a person who knows him so first of all um the the idea that it's opportunistic um he, he's got a business he's you know, he didn't really want to run that much. We had to talk him into it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, he, he obviously has it's, a, he, like all of us, he has a feeling of a concern about where Australia's heading. So he wanted yeah. to do that to kind of you know, step forward to sort of help. And he's, he's the child of two federal, former federal Liberal Party ministers. Um, so, you know, I, I don't doubt his jet, his his sincerity in running one bit, not one bit, Um the, the Vlad laws, which keep coming up in, because we're a libertarian party and this question of these association laws, you've got to look at that in the context of what it was. Unlike what we're seeing now with Dan Andrews, Campbell was very particular about putting a sunset clause into that legislation so that it didn't just go on endlessly, right, for starters. Secondly, it followed on the back of broad, like violent, you know, Biking gangs attacking each other in a climate where we ha- where the government just had to do something
0: to get control of this
1: crime situation that was absolutely out of control. Yeah, but um, listen to
0: what you're saying. You, you, I I may agree with that that they need to do something to get the bikers under control. But what we're doing is the same lines run by Daniel Andrews. No, we're not because you're treating Victor- ordinary Victorians like criminals. This is treating criminals like criminals. There's
2: no, a big difference dis- if someone's I, I really. He, yeah, was treating, he was treating anyone that rode a motorbike like a criminal. I challenged him on this yes. when I interviewed him when I was in Brisbane recently. Yeah. Uh, and I don't want to steal your thunder, Matt, with your interview tomorrow. No, tell me what uh, he said. But he was very quick to claim, and I take him at his word, he doesn't seem like a liar to me, yeah. uh, that he regards those laws as they were written as a mistake. Wow. And that what he should have done is told the police to make better use of the existing laws. Because when those brawls broke out, those bikers were breaking all kinds of existing laws. And mm-hmm. in hindsight, he recognizes that they did not need additional laws. Yes. They just needed to actually exercise the ones they had. He went yes. further on to say that he didn't write the laws and someone else did. And I was kind of sitting there going, mm, you're sounding a lot like a politician now, <laughs> um, but he what his point was it was brought to him by the party as we've got a massive problem right now. People are screaming out for you to do something. Here's yeah. something. Do this. Yes. And he assented to that pressure and recognizes in hindsight that it was a mistake. Not that he should have done nothing, but certainly yes. that those laws were not correct. And in fact, they already had the, the laws that they needed in order to deal with that problem. That was, he, that's, that's my summary of what he said to me. Yeah,
0: it has, yeah. this contrition is the antidote to the, what I'm bringing up. That's fantastic to hear. But to be clear, Damo, um, it's not a specific attack on Campbell. The reason why the electorate is is annoyed with this kind of behavior that they they perceive there, whether it's there or not, is because we're seeing it broadly amongst all politicians. You know, they promise one thing, then they do another. But the, the key thing about promising one thing and doing another is the why. Every single yeah. time they say, what choice did I have? COVID people were dying. Hospitals were yeah. overrun, whatever the no. issue is. Yeah. And so they're well intentioned and well-meaning. And that's what we're scared of. We're scared of someone getting in and being well-intentioned and doing a Dom Perrottet. So remember when parate took over New South Wales from Gladys, he had all these high uh, arguments of freedom and your your freedom is God-given and whatever. And then as soon as he got in, he started to backtrack. Now, thankfully he's come through on some of his, um, his principles, but that's what we're worried about for the best of intentions. Sorry, I, I couldn't couldn't do anything. No,
1: but and that's why with Campbell, it's a contrition that it wasn't the right thing to do, uh, and I was going to get to that. But I mean, it is. It is not. You know, it what it was. It could have been handled a lot better, and he admits that. Um, and and I think. That that's what we need to see much more of, just just you know accepting that these these things are wrong. And I want to see you know they talk about politicians that can never make their mind up and they flip flop. Okay, yeah, that can be a problem, but I I prefer that actually over politicians that are so rigid that they get new information and they don't change their mind on something. What I'm looking for is that they stick to their bloody values. And what we're not seeing in Australia at the moment is the major parties or any parties other than the Liberal Democrats sticking to their values. We've got a Greens party, uh, sorry, we've got a socialist party pretending to be green. So the Reds are pretending to be green. We've got a bunch of Greens pretending, Green semi-socialists to, to, pretending to be independents. We've got a Liberal party that isn't liberal. We've got a Labour party that doesn't stand up for Labour and the working class anymore. Right? They're inner city woke. That so we've got all these fake brands out there. The only party that actually has the value system that matches its name is the Liberal Democratic Party. You know, so when you vote for a Liberal Democrat, you get a Liberal Democrat. And that's what I am. That's what Topher is. That's what Campbell is. Um, they're the principles. They're the values that we stand up for. And so everything that we're going to do, you know, we're going to argue between ourselves even, obviously. Um, but but there are there's a lens that we're looking at everything through, and that lens is a liberal, democratic, classical liberal, libertarian, little bit of conservatism. I mean, within the, even within our party, you've got those three sort of, political ideas but you we all share this commitment to liberty and Mm -hmm. and and we will balance each other out and we'll work stuff out and there'll be there will be compromises and you might look at someone and go oh you know they said they were going to do this and now they're doing this but it won't be they had these values and now they've got they're doing something that's totally contradictory to those values like sitting around while states rip people's liberty off them and not even saying anything just sitting there and letting it happen and saying, oh, well, I'm the federal government. I can't do it. It's not my job, you know? Well, actually, you could. You could actually speak up, for starters. You could criticise the states. And there are levers that the feds can pull. I get a little angry when I start talking about this, because there are levers that the feds can pull, that they could be, you know, um, uh, putting a lot of pressure on the states, actually. Uh, and there's also our constitution. You can you can write a federal law, and, and
0: that law will override the states in a lot of cases. So... You know, the I idea at all? Oh, I
1: couldn't do anything.
0: I, I'd love to challenge you, you two guys. right? I'm going to do it, whether you like it or not, because no, I think you I you love something. You, I love you both as friends, yeah. and so that's why I think you can handle this because you're friends, and I think you're both big enough to handle this. But I want to tell you the truth, which is, I get the feeling that let's hang on. Fact first, the only person who's really been tried and tested and found to be actual solid LDP will probably, maybe David Leinhelm, but definitely David Limbrick. Absolutely. Even when it's cost him, he stood. Yeah. yeah. You, uh, So Topher, Damon Currie here, and uh, Campbell Newman haven't really been tested on the LDP platform. Yeah. I get the feeling that the two friends in front of me on Zoom right now, if enough pressure was put on, that you would, both of you, would go, look, I'm strategically going to depart briefly from my values of freedom and liberty and classical principles, but it's going to be worth it in the long run. So that that's my gist from you two guys. Please. If you can defend yourself, am I mistaken?
2: It, de- it depends on the issue. Are there issues mm. that I would make that rational choice on? Yes, those issues do exist. Are there issues where no matter what, I would not make that rational choice? Yes, those issues also exist. So I would need a specific example. But let me let me talk about my own track record because you're absolutely right. David Limbrick, he's been tested. He passed. I would argue that I've been tested on my principles and I've passed with flying colours. And where my principles differ from the LDP, I've been very public and explicit about, and that's specifically on abortion and assisted suicide. Right? Everywhere else, I'm in alignment with the Liberal Democratic Party's policy platform. So, you know, you, you, you're talking to someone, and I know you know this, but for anyone who's watching who may not know, I've been a, a political commentator for 12 years. I have evolved politically considerably over the last 20 years, and I've been public about that. There are things that I said early on in my commentary that I now regard as wrong. but I was just the other day in, in Hobart, I was at the handing over uh, from um, Gabriel uh, Shipton, Julian Assange's brother. He handed over 700,000 uh, petitions to Andrew Wilkie, MP, um, to the Australian government. Essentially, he will be tabling them in Parliament for the release of Julian Assange. Now, when Julian Assange was arrested, I supported his arrest. I bought the line that he was a terrorist, he was enabling terrorists, that Australian soldiers were going to die because of him, all that stuff that was said at the time. I believed it all at the time. And I've changed over that period of time. Change is a good thing. I agree with what Damien said earlier, but I think it's very important when you're dealing with someone who's changed that they acknowledge the change. When someone says, oh, no, 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 I was never like that. Well, that's an alarm bell, right? When someone like a Campbell Newman says, you're absolutely right, I did pass that law and I now believe that that was a mistake. I think that's a sign of maturity and actually humility. Yeah, uh, And I think it's a very, very good thing. So have I changed over time? Yes. Would I compromise on a principle that matters? No. And it doesn't matter how much pressure you apply. And there are two anecdotes that I want to give to, to, to demonstrate that point. As a 29-year-old man, I was contacted by Dick Smith. Yes, the Dick Smith. He had a thing at the time called the Wilberforce Award. It was for anyone under 30 years of age who was willing to become the face of his campaign against a big Australia. Now, I was only a few years out from having been opposed to a big Australia and opposed to immigration. I used to be a conservative. I used to be opposed to immigration. Australia should be for Australians, uh, etc. all that nonsense, what I now regard as nonsense. I could have reverted back to that very easily because the reason he got in touch with me was to offer me a million dollars in the form of the Wilberforce Award. He'd seen my videos and he says to me, Tofa, you're my guy. I haven't found anybody else yet. One Miri and Dares. Klaus <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. Schwaben. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and he's ringing it. He's ringing me to offer it to me. Hmm he's i i went up to i said look i don't actually believe in, in that, that a big australia is a problem but if there's a million dollars on the line i'm happy to talk about it a little bit more mm-hmm. he flew me up to sydney we spent a day together it was an incredible day we talked very deeply about a lot of different things he was very kind to me even after it became evident to him that he wasn't going to change my mind he was still very gracious and very kind and to this day if i call him he answers and 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 we can talk uh, but i literally knocked back a million dollars as a 29 year old man because I knew that I would never be able to buy my own integrity back if I accepted money to stand up for something that I didn't believe in. Mm. Now, my second major test in my life has been the last two years. There was no incentive for me to come out against the lockdowns. I had my little niche carved out. I was the water guy. I was standing up for farmers. I had, you know, free speech and a bit of other stuff like that. That was my niche. I was a stay at home dad like looking after the kids so that my wife could run her business, which she loves and she enjoys doing. I had absolutely no incentive. And I certainly had no incentive to double down and triple down and quadruple down as the police got more and more violent and as the stakes got higher and higher. And I was, you know, I was asked the question by the Victorian government, not directly, but in their actions, they asked me the question, how far are you willing to go? And my reply was one step further than you. Right. So I would argue that I have absolutely proved myself uh, in, in two very different but very testing tests that I, I believe I have passed. So to, to your question, Matt, would I compromise on for, for pragmatic gain for a greater payoff later? Mm. On matters that don't actually cut to the principles that I stand for, yes. Okay, I've, I've done exactly that with the how-to-vote cards, mm. right? There's wheeling and dealing that goes on. You put someone onto your how-to-vote card that you've gone, eh. I don't love the fact that they're there, but there's an advantage elsewhere that makes it worth it. But that's not cutting to my prince. I'm not going to compromise on free speech for some long-term advantage. Yeah. I'm not going to compromise on innocent until proven guilty for some tactical reason. There are bedrock principles that do not get compromised on. And I think I've proved that that I'm not someone who's going to compromise.
0: Thank you for taking mm-hmm. my my cynicism, my skepticism well. <laughs> I appreciate it. So, demo. Um, at the risk mm. of because you're flying down to see me tomorrow, I don't want you to eat me when you arrive. Uh, <laughs> look, mate. I just, I look. I just think that what Turf has just described there is interesting because I guess he hasn't promised me so much that he will be the best, you know, version of David Limbrick ever. He's said that he'll be authentic and open and transparent about it. And there are a couple of bedrock things. Uh, something that's always concerned me about with you, my friend, has been that you've been a liberal guy forever. And now you're running for the LDP. If this doesn't work out, do you, would you switch to another party? Like how, how deep does the LDP principles run in your veins?
1: I was not an, a liberal guy forever. mate. I, I voted labor until I was like, till I grew up and studied economics and worked out how the world really worked. Oh. Um, and, uh, and then I, you know, when I came back to Australia, I joined the liberal party because it was the most aligned with my values and I wanted to have an impact. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I was only in the Liberal Party one election. I, I wouldn't I didn't run. I just supported, you know, did some volunteering and road roadsiding and stuff like that for the candidate. Um, and it gave me a good understanding of the inside of the party and how things worked. But I grew up in Biocchi Peterson's Queensland. So the natural Sorry. inclination in those days was to be Labour because they were they were pretty, you well, know, there were corrupt serious corruption issues in that. I have a bit more respect for Peterson himself now, but but the uh the party had real problems um and some horrible people in it. Um so, uh, yeah, my early 20s inclination was to be a bit of a lefty and, you uh, know, uh, I was a journalist. So, you know, and then I went into business and then I, as I said, I grew up and, and my thinking changed. Um, so I became a, a, a classical, I mean, i define myself as a classical liberal. Um, I, I used to watch a lot of Dave Rubin and that's why I started The Other Side because, I mean, I sort of wanted to emulate that for Australia. That was kind of my, my vision. Um, uh, slightly different sort of show, but, you know, Thought that there was a need for that conversation to be had about people who were kind of questioning where the left had gone and sort of gone off the edge of a cliff with this identity politics garbage um, but I still care about working class people and there and I care about poverty and I care about social services and I care about those things and I understand that you can't afford those things if you don't have a free market liberal economy and you don't have Some smart people being rewarded very, very highly. You know, there are going to be some billionaires around. And I don't want to tax them all so that they want to leave Australia like the Greens do. You know, we need to support these, these entrepreneurs and these innovators and these people. And there have to be those rewards there to make people want to strive for this stuff. So I'm a liberal, you know, that's what I believe in. I left the Liberal Party because I don't, I I couldn't accept that they were, you know, it would have been much better for me to play the game, stay in in the Liberal National Party um i was on track for a pretty good opportunity to probably uh you know run for a seat Um, that had been hinted to me a number of times um but i didn't feel comfortable with that and i left you know i met campbell i saw the integrity that he had he jumped ship and i i sort of thought well this is an opportunity that there might be something in this party and i explored the party i knew dr humphreys had him on the podcast and got to know him and uh uh, appreciated his philosophy. I had always admired um, Leonhelm's thinking, and I, I had the pleasure of interviewing him once. Um, so you know this, and I was watching David on David Limbrick on your show, and just thinking, well, this guy, this is a man of integrity that's working his backside off, fighting this thing against all odds. Um and I'm really glad Toph has come on board because I was a big admirer of what he was doing too. Because as he said, he's putting his neck out there in a way that I'm not sure I'd have the I'd have the guts to at the end of the day, but I'll keep going for as long as I feel I can. Um but yeah, I mean that's I mean because. that's my there was no there's no incentive for me to, to, to do this either. I mean, it's been costly, but there was no incentive to do the other side either. I mean, that was costly in time and, and money. And it's just the stage of life I'm at. I'm older than the new guys. And I'm kind of ready to give back a bit. I've done reasonably well. I'm not, you know, I'm not the richest guy on earth, but I can live comfortably. I've got, you know, and it's, it's, um, I've got a little time now and I want to just do something creative with that and, and get back into, that's why I love the podcasting and why I've gotten involved in the political arena because um it's a good way to give back and it's a good way to so I'm not interested in kind of compromising on my values, and I don't have to compromise on my values of anyone at this stage of life. So, so I think this I've is uh, if I don't, yeah, if you don't win, you don't win. And, you
0: know, I think I've you misread read your political leanings then, Damo. And that's having worked with you quite intimately for a year and a half. No, so... I'm concerned. Well, you seem you've always said to me, we've always had these debates.
1: You've always said to yeah. me you're very conservative. Yeah. Um I guess I have become, I think as you become older and you become a dad and everything, you do get a little bit more conservative. My views have shifted. I'll tell you some things that my views have shifted on. Um, um, I don't think my views have shifted on women's issues as much. I mean, I just think that the we've moved forward and we're now at a position where, you know, we, we live in one of the most... Um, Gender equal nations on Earth, and that the rallying cry of the modern feminists is an opportunistic one. The third wave feminists are—they it's business, right? They're using the whole women's thing as a as a way to advance themselves um, and the networking and all of that. And you know, I got no problem with that either. Good luck to them. But uh, I don't think we live in an environment where women are as oppressed as anywhere near as oppressed as they might have been in the last century, in the middle of the last century, or the beginning of the last century for sure. In the suffragette movement, we are miles from that. Um, but where, where I've changed, one issue would be abortion, right? I used to be of the view that, you know, abortion was okay. Anytime in the first trimester, maybe into the second trimester all that sort of thing. Um, and I now have a very, very different view on that. Um, and I'm loud and proud about it. I'm quite happy to stand up and say, no, I think I still believe that we've got a, you've got a, you know, period where, um, you know, you, 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 the, the interests of, of, the individual outweigh the the concerns of us of a second life but it's a much shorter period for me now it's only about four to six weeks having looked at the science around um the development of the of the uh, the embryo um so but you know after that i'm very harshly anti-abortion now um and that's a big change for me because i listened to a very very good Catholic theologi- theological debate um, with it, with both sides being put, and my thinking changed on that. You know, um, because there are two lives involved, right? I'd always seen it as the rights of the woman, as the pro-abortion movement do, and now I understand. Well, there's actually two beings here, and we don't have that. It's like Tofa was saying, you know, people playing God now, and you see it all the time in the environmental movement. Oh, we're going to fix everything. We're going to depopulate. We're going to reduce the population. Um, that actually came up in one of our debates recently. It was the, the reducing the population thing. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. You know, it's it's it's
0: frightening. Awesome um, topic moment. Well, thank yeah. you for having that discussion, uh, both of you, with me, just on those curly issues. Hey, can I throw some hypotheticals at you both? Uh, I don't know how long we've been going, but I feel like I should wrap it up. Hey, hypotheticals, who should not vote for you guys? Tell me about uh, who you would be a bad candidate for. Uh, The reason why I ask is I feel that people who sort of know the positives of anything or any principle or any person, if they're not willing to see where the shortfalls are, uh, they don't really have a true understanding. I mean, based on learned hand, you know, he who only knows his side of the case knows little of that. So tell me who you are terrible for, who should not vote for you.
2: If you're the kind of person that gets in touch with your candidate and demands them to spend more money on X, Y, or Z, I ain't your guy, right? If you're ringing up going, you need to spend more money on hospitals or you need to spend more money on this or more money on that, I'm not your guy. Uh, I also, to, to bring it you know, closer to, to some policies that maybe people might be more surprised at, um, you know, if you want to solve the problem of multinationals not paying tax in Australia by adding new taxes, I'm not your guy. <laughs> if crazy. there's a problem with multinationals. Yeah, if, 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 if there's a problem with multinationals shifting their profits offshore, how about we lower our corporate tax rate for all corporations, not just offshore ones, to the point that they're shifting their profits onshore? How about we solve it that way? Um, so, so I find with a lot of people, and I include the Greens in this, and this may surprise you they correctly identify problems. Now, not every problem that the Greens talk about is a real problem. But in many cases, they're correctly identifying problems and then prescribing the exact opposite of the solution. That's what I find is often the case. And so people might come to me and they demand that I take a certain action because they think it's the solution to the problem. But if we actually sat down and talked about what the problem really is, then we might be able to find a solution that is consistent with my values that actually deals with the problem rather than the imagined solution of spending more money or, or what have you. But yeah, if if you want the government meddling in people's lives, if you want the government spending more money and funding pet projects, I am definitely not your guy.
0: A yeah, supplementary question before we go to Damien for that his answer. That seems to me that's the number one uh, thing that politicians respond to, pork barreling around election time, give more money to this mm-hmm. hospital, blah, blah, blah. But more than mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. the people, the conversations I have, oh, I heard that he's going to do this. He's going to give me casual um, uh, uh, sick days. He's, he's going to give me, give me, give me. Uh, so any any thoughts on that uh, that kind of attitude in our culture, in our voter base, uh, Topher?
2: You're absolutely right. And if that doesn't change soon, then we're doomed. Yeah. Uh, the, the the hope is that there are enough adults out there that recognize that there is no such thing as a free lunch right. um, The reality is most socialists grow up and they stop being socialists at some point Or at least stop being as hardcore about their socialist views as what they used to be You know, uh, Damien mentioned you become a dad, you become a bit more conservative Well, I think most, most sort of communists, the majority of them grow up And at some point they realize, hang on, we can't have a welfare program if we don't have a healthy economy Um, so, so I, I think that there's a, there's a really large degree to which, um, people growing up is on our side, but also I think we're getting a lot better at carrying the message to everybody. Hey, there's no such thing as a free lunch and history is helping us out here. Kevin Wright handed out $900 checks, Mm. right? And everybody knows now in hindsight that that was a really dumb idea because whatever the sugar rush of 900 bucks felt like is long gone. And people are now looking at it with a bit more of a cold, hard, realistic view. So now when um, Skoma comes along and says, hey everybody, 250 bucks, there's a whole subset of the population that rolls their eyes and goes off for fuck's sake, can you not have a single original idea? We've seen this before. So I, I, I think in many ways, as we get better at our messaging and at carrying these ideas out into the marketplace of ideas, and as we start to have small amounts of electoral success and earn our way, like I was talking about before, earn our way into the political landscape. I think that's an absolutely solvable problem, but it's a 20-year project. It's not It's not going to happen at this election.
0: Curie, I've got to talk to you because uh, Topher is so optimistic all the time. Every time I talk to him, I'm filled with I needed, hope. That... I need to hang out with Tofer a lot more. <laughs> yeah, but I'm sceptical. I'm like, he's put too Whenever much I'm hope in me. I'm up and down like
1: this on a daily basis now. <laughs> with too. this election. I'm like, you know, and I, oh, it's great. I just had somebody come up and tell me how passionate they are about liberal and then the next person walks up and it's like, why aren't you wearing a mask? They're <laughs> going to kill us all.
0: <laughs> are you I still doing masks in Queensland? Direct. Are you still doing masks? No, up there? but
1: randomly, oh, yeah. I mean, I was at a shopping centre on the weekend, there were, you know, one in a hundred now would, would have a mask on, but people would probably need to,
0: older ones, or, I don't know. But I got hey, on that uh, by one. Who, anyway, who, on. Who's, yeah, bad, bad people. <laughs> who should not vote for you, Koori?
1: Oh, Lots of it, no. Um, people, no. People, I think it's one of the funniest things I've been told It's kind of stolen the answer there, but it, but it's it's true. You know, like I didn't realise before I got into politics how many emails you get from interest yeah. groups and how these yeah. auto emails come. And yeah. every single one of them is like, we want more money for this. Are you gonna? What are you going to do about this? How are you going to fix this? What's government going to do about it? And I've actually started writing back to them and saying, well, do you have a costing for this idea? as I would have done when I was in business, right, to my yeah. staff. I would have said, well, director brings me an idea. Well, what's the costing and how are you going to pay for it, yeah. right? Um, what are we going to – how are we going to move things around to get this paid for? And I've noticed yeah. this in the in the uh, debates, the number of questions that come from the audience saying, what are you going to do about it? And then Elizabeth Watson-Brown, who's the Greens candidate in my area, and she is a – you know, she presents beautifully and she's – a great speaker and she's an older lady and she's very mature and she's a professional architect, your classic inner city green, by the way. Um, But she will get up and every time she opens a mouth, she's spending a hundred billion bucks. It's like, uh, where is this all coming from? But it sounds wonderful. It sounds beautiful. It's very hard to counter that narrative and be the bad guy saying, "Um, actually we're kind of broke. We've got a trillion dollars debt. So if you want the government to fix your life, do not vote for me right if you want the government to get out of your life vote for me right because we will get the government out of your life we will have social services we will have a safety net but we'll we'll just have a safety net and government will be there to, to set the playing field rules and enforce those rules but it won't be playing in the game itself there won't be an abc there'll be a uh, there'll be a, some sort of government broadcaster to provide services where the market fails and you're not getting those services in the country or, uh, <clears throat> you know, overseas correspondence that the networks won't pay for and things like that that the ABC can do. But that's what they'll be doing. That's what they'll be focused on. Right. So we will need with funding, mate. Come on discernible needs hey? funding you need to we would we, we would start oh, off course yeah you get want, me on that even sweet... you're asking for government money now yes i want
0: get to get on that sweet sweet government teat <laughs> i want to suck all that that government breast uh-huh hey, well there's plenty a lot of plenty of people doing it in this country but the problem is it's going to run out so i haven't done my
1: debt thing in this episode matt so i'm going to what, just take 30 seconds to give what you what my debt thing, thing. it's my nope. my pet
0: well my be, pet before thief. you before before you do the debt thing you got to tell me did do those people answer your emails with a costing or an idea of a costing? No, not. They just one. go quiet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure they
1: go, but I, I get put on some list of being, you know, don't some don't evil, care. dark person. Um, but anyway, the, the reality, what I love about economics, and this did come up in the debate, is that economics doesn't lie, right? It's, it's just, it just is. It's like gravity. And you can move stuff around, but you can't, this whole idea of, even Keynesian economics and now the extension of that into this modern monetary theory, MMT nonsense, that that even the Liberal Party and the Conservative Party in the UK are kind of talking seriously about and it's utter garbage. I always say to people, they don't understand money. Money is a very confusing concept. It took me many, many years to get my head around it. Money is only has the value that, that the community agrees that it has based on actual value produced. So if we're not productive, that's it. You, you, unless you're adding value, you're not you're not creating anything. You can print all the money that you want to, and you can say you're going to you know spend it. But if I if we've got Australia's this and it's producing, let's say Australia's producing this much value, yeah, right. And and we have next to that in our currency, we've we've got you know uh, money 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 out there to the value of you know fifty trillion dollars. All right, it's yeah. probably way off the mark, but anyway. Um, then if you start printing more money and you double that to a hundred trillion dollars, it doesn't shift this value. It doesn't mean you've added any value at all. You've just halved the value of the currency, of the money. So be careful, you know, have a think about where when they say they're going to spend on this and they're going to spend on that, you know, it sounds like you're always saying, well, where's the money going to come from? And then the, the green literally at this debate, she said, from the billionaires, we're going to tax the billionaires. Well, you know, let's say you got Joe billionaire over there. First of all, I don't. I think there is only like a couple of hundred of them in the country. But if, you, if, you, if you've got Joe billionaire and he's sitting there on his two billion dollars wealth, yeah, take it all. That doesn't mean he makes two billion dollars a year that you can tax, right? He might only make a hundred million dollars a year. You are taxing forty percent of that. Um, you are getting forty million dollars. I'm pretty sure she spent that 20 times in just one yeah. answer. Right. So let's, okay, let's put the billionaires aside for a minute. Okay. We're going to get enough out of them. Now, the other, the other thing on the Greens poster is tax the corporations. Well, who pays the corporate tax? A corporate, ta- corporate tax is a cost of doing business, right? So it has to get added in to the cost. And then we pay for it when we go to the shops and buy the stuff that the corporations produce. So it's like, well, we're paying for it. So it's a tax on the public again, right? So this is the Greens' answer. The Greens' answer is to, is to tax this mythical monopoly man, you know, the guy from the Monopoly board that they all think is yeah. stealing all their money, um, some evil creature. That's their whole idea of concept of capitalism. Um, fat white guys. Uh, mm. And, and, they, and they, that's, the, that's the extent of their thinking. It's like, okay, you're not going to get any money out of them. And then you want to tax corporations, they're just going to pass it on to us. So, mm-hmm. where is the money coming from? It's not coming from anywhere. So we've got to think about this debt. Look, here's the thing. These are my favourite numbers. Okay, I'll be very quick about this. the uh, The amount of income tax we pay is about 200, 200 to two hundred fifty billion. I might not be perfect with these numbers, but they're roughly right. Two hundred to two hundred fifty billion dollars of Australia's tax money comes into the government from Personal income tax from wage earners, right? Mm. So 250 billion. Then you've got about another 250 to 300 billion that comes in through other taxes. Okay. So we've got about $550 billion revenue coming into the government each year to 600 billion, right? Okay. Now, how much does the government spend? The government spends every year around about 650 to 750 billion. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're overspending by about 100 to 150 billion a year. So we've got to borrow that. All right. Now, this is a very crude example. I mean, these numbers are not perfect, but we are now sitting on a trillion dollars debt. Yes. Right now, let's say you want to pay that off over fifty over twenty years. Right, you don't want the kids to be paying it off forever. We've already stolen it from them, so we're going to give it back in twenty years. That's fifty billion a year, right? For twenty years, so you've got to pay back off the principal to get it down to zero. Interest rates are now running at about. I think the interest on that. Um, the Prime Minister said the other night in the debate was about 2.8% or something like that, 2.5% roughly. Right. Okay, interest rates going up, they're going to go up about 2% the next couple of years, that's so going to go up to 45 maybe 5 probably. So let's say for, for ease of calculation, it's 5% on a trillion, the interest bill. So every year we have to fork out $50 billion on the interest and $50 billion to pay down the principal if we want to get it paid off in 20 years. That's $100 billion a year, okay? So that represents half of... All the money that we, the government gets out of income tax from people, it represents um, a, about a, a fifth of all tax altogether. And it represents about a seventh of the whole government spending every year. So we've got to we, we can't just make this up. We have to cut the government spending by seventh. Yeah. How how are we going to do it? We've got a plan to do that, right? We're We're not. going to to kick
0: it down the road and let another generation pay for it. Well, that's the MNT solution,
1: but that doesn't necessarily work because eventually you get to the point where you create inflation. Interest rates go up so much that you can get into that hyperinflation loop that we saw happening in Zimbabwe and then in Venezuela. And, you know,
2: then then we're really cactus. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway. We've seen governments do this before. We know exactly where it leads. Look, I bang on about this all the time. I I think we've been incredibly foolish and I think we're about to reap what we've sowed. I mean, you guys are telling me I'm being too optimistic about the election. If you want me to be a bit less optimistic, uh, just talk to me a little bit, talk to me for a little while about um, uh, economics, economics, the economic future of Australia. And trust me, you won't be hearing a lot of optimism then. Uh, I'm just going to move rooms. I'm in in someone else's bedroom in the uh, Airbnb while we're on the campaign trail. So I'm just... uh, Moving out so that they can they can actually sleep in their room because you know Mr. Wong told me that he was weak and he was only going to go for an hour and now it's been an hour and a half and we're still going.
0: Hour and a half. Well, uh, gentlemen, were you about to say something, Turf? I was gonna to go to a last question.
2: Yeah. No, no, all good. All
0: right. So, guys, uh, I'm gonna ask you a question. Just try and give me a short answer on this one because I just think it'll force you to distill your thoughts. Uh, before we do that. Is there anything you want to say to the people? And then we'll do my last question and we'll say goodnight. You want to make a pitch? Do you want to say anything to everyone? I probably won't see you until the election.
2: So what I'm telling everyone is do the boring. Do the boring. Uh, Politics is boring, but it is the best mechanism that we have for making change. And by do the boring, I mean volunteer to stand on a polling booth, volunteer to stuff letterboxes, put up signs in your front yard, talk to your friends, do the boring. We had this exhilarating experience at least in Victoria where we had these incredible protests where the cops were cracking heads and it was a real, it was an amazing adrenaline rush, deeply traumatic for some people but no an amazing adrenaline rush for, for all of us. Uh, then we had the, the police finally back down, and we had these incredible protests with literally hundreds of thousands of people mm-hmm. at them. What a euphoric you know outcome after all of the price that we paid to get there. it was super exciting. Well I'm sorry, but the time for excitement is kind of done. We achieved everything that we could achieve through that mechanism. Now it's time for the boring. So do the boring.
0: Please, please do the boring, people, because when you email me after the election complaining, what can we do, Matt? What can we do? They don't listen to us. Well, you should have voted, okay? So do the boring. Uh, Damien Curry, do you have a final Yeah. It's, it's,
1: well, it's. I totally agree. It's more than um just just voting you've got to support the candidates because we don't have the money we don't have the and i say money one of the most funded campaigns in my electric is the green campaign so there is just a truckload of money behind that party you can see it in all the advertising um so they are getting a lot of corporate money um from the renewables industry and various other um woke corporations so uh we need your support. We need feet on the ground. The number one problem that I've got now is that on election day, at the moment, I've got a roster out there for uh, two pre-polling booths in my electorate, and we've got volunteers for that, and that's fantastic. We've got a f- lot of volunteers, but we've got a good, great core of people who have just been absolutely fantastic. On election day, there are going to be 37 polling booths in the electorate yeah. of Ryan, yeah. and yeah. it's a 10-hour day, so I need I need 74 people I would say I need, we need seventy-four people to do two five-hour shifts. Um, and yeah. and they they're so. If you're sitting at home right now thinking I want to do something, or I agree with these guys and I want to help out, but what what difference would it make? Well, it'd make it actually it'd actually make a massive difference yeah. if we could get yeah. you out for five hours on election day.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm trying to cover every single polling booth in Tassie. So wow. you know, if you're in Tasmania, then uh, then please uh, send a message to the TOEFA Field Facebook page. Um, and let me know that you're in Tassie and you want to volunteer because I'm exactly the same, mate. Exactly the same. Do yeah. the boring.
1: Kuri uh, at LDP.org.au is my email. So just c o r y no E, at LDP.org.au
0: or through the usual other side channels or on Twitter. Um, you know, where I am on Twitter, most people do. So, all right, gentlemen, That's... here's your question. Think about it and I'll do a couple of ads while you're thinking and we'll, we'll finish off with a short answer. The question is I really want, to help the people uh, watching, trying to make a decision on candidates, not just the principles of the LDP, they might support, but when they look at their local candidates, it's hard for people to discern who is telling the truth or who I should support or who's trustworthy. So all the questions I've been asking you tonight with my cynicism, with my skepticism has been reflecting that attitude. I'm a little bit nervous. Mm -hmm. I'm a little bit scared. I need to know. So can you please uh, help equip them? by giving us just a really short statement in a few minutes of um, what people can ask, whether it be emailing the candidates or asking them at the poll uh, on the street, or what should be like the the number one thing people are trying to find out from a candidate. If there's one question you can go and ask your candidates to determine where they stand, uh, whether they suit you, what should people be asking? What point should they be the one point they should be looking for in those candidates? Think about that and let's do some ads. We are having live election coverage everybody from 6pm to midnight every day i'm in the studio doing carpentry in fact tomorrow damon curie is going to fly down and have a look and we're going to uh, show you a little bit of what the set looks like but we are going to try and compete with sky news and abc and so on Uh, we already have a number of regional pubs in victoria who are going to be running our coverage exclusively throughout their venues so tune into all of the discernible channels i think we're also being simulcast on voice for victoria channels the panel will be five people live. We're going to be doing just like they do on the uh, Dinosaur Legacy Media, but we're going to be doing it a whole lot better uh, in terms of, um, not money, in terms of real opinions, real people talking the real stuff. Uh, we're going to be crossing live all over the country. I'm going to be inviting people like Topher Field and Damien Currie via email after this and... If they show up, you'll know they said yes. If they don't show up in our live broadcast, you know they dogged me. So watch our live election coverage. It's very important that you watch it, share it, because the more we demonstrate that we are a force to be reckoned with, let's say mainstream media pulls, I don't know, 300,000 people watching on Channel 7 that night, and we pull 30,000, 10%. That is a miracle. We can say, look, we just did 10% of Channel 7, right? So watch and share our live coverage of the election. Second of all, uh, if you want to support us in that, we are currently, people are purchasing equipment for that studio. There's a link in the description below. Uh, and there was uh, one other thing. If you like this discussion, help us out by sharing it. Take the URL, copy it, paste it, put it on your socials, and say, hey, this guy, Damien Curry or this guy, Topher Field, they talk sense. Have a look at this, share this video. That's what's going to help us the most. Gentlemen, Please equip the poor people out there. What should we be looking for? What should we we be honing in on? What should we be asking? Just give us a nice short. What should what should we be looking for to determine or to discern with someone's a good vote for us?
2: I'll go first, just so that Damien gets the last word, because I think uh, I think you've earned it, mate. Uh, you've you've been allowing me to jump in first the whole way through, so I'm not going to change now. Um, <laughs> go for it. Mate. I think I think in a way, Matt, you're asking the wrong question. There is no one oh, thing. Dare you. You know, if you if you want to be a single issue voter, you go right ahead. But you're not at that point, you're not voting for anyone who's actually capable of running a government. You're just voting for someone who is right on the specific issue that matters most to you. I think there is a minimum threshold. They must be opposed to the government mandating vaccines. I think that's got to be a given. They must be opposed to any return to the insanity of 2020 and 21 with the lockdowns, the border closures, et cetera. And I think they have to be fundamentally in favor of basic human rights, freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, freedom of religion, freedom of movement, the private ownership of your own property, which includes things like being able to run your own business and stuff, even when the government says you can't. This is the basic stuff. And it's tragic that we've got ourselves in a situation in Australia where we've got to get back to such basic elementary stuff. But we do because okay. the major political parties have dropped the ball in a major way. So that would be my answer to the question.
0: Thank you, Tofa. Tepha. So has given us a nice little three-point plan to determine whether they where they stand on some of the most important things, in his view. Uh, for the record, Demi Group, if you give me an answer, I'm not looking for a single issue uh, like what Tefa was saying. I'm just trying to help people with a tool. What can they look for when they look at these candidates and not be bamboozled by all the propaganda?
1: Um. I would say look for candidates that are willing to shrink the size of government and look for candidates who are not looking for a career in government and look for candidates that have a good CB in leadership and in management or whatever uh, that you value. So that would be it. Just, you know, uh, are you going to cut your, your own, a department, you know, if you're a minister, you know, you're going to reduce the budget, you're going to force government to reduce itself because government just continues to expand, it feeds itself, it continues to grow bit by bit by bit by bit by bit. And Australia has got a monster of a government on many levels, and we've got a lot of bureaucrats with a lot of power. Um, I mean, come down to the polling booth at the beginning of the day and watch the AEC and the Brisbane City Council debate where we can put our signs for 25 minutes. I mean, the money in that goes into that is hilarious. I know there have got to be rules, and I quite like the rules. It's fine. You know, it's good to have rules. It stops me and the Greens fighting too much. But, um, but you know, it's just crazy. I mean, our bureaucracy is out of control. And uh, I would just say that, you know, you, are you going to reduce the signs? What are you going to do to, to spend less instead of can I have some more money for this? Or are you going to spend some more money over here? Or can you give this? But no, we don't have any more money we now we have to cut this waste down we've got to spend less and we need to do it in a way that isn't going to affect the really important social services the core important government stuff that we need the safety net um and and then we've got to so we've got to be smart in the way that we manage it and all the greens and labor do is tell you they're going to spend more on this and spend more on that and spend yes. out a liberal is doing the same thing if you watch q a with yeah. Campbell newman you would have heard him saying it's about it's about efficiencies and getting efficiencies out of what we've got in the money we're already spending and using it the right way instead of blowing it and
0: wasting it. Great, and thank you for the tool. Thank you for the toolkit. If you see a politician advocate for a smaller government, which is his industry, he's going against his own self-interest. That is quite already, remarkable. Yeah. In fact, I'll end with a little short story. Sorry to keep you guys, but you're going to listen to this story as well. So I'm a pretty big keto carnivore, meat heavy type of guy. It suits my body better. I've lost a lot of weight on it. I feel great. Health is improved, right? I interviewed this big vegan expert called Simon Hill, complete opposite to everything I've experienced in terms of health and diet. And I asked him the one last question at the end of the interview, and it was if the science moved in his opinion, science points towards veganism, but as if, if the science moved and said, you need to eat a a meat heavy animal product, rich diet, go carnivore, whatever, would you move? And to great um, pain, because his fan base can be quite rabid, not his particular fan base, but the vegan fan base can can be quite judgmental. uh, If you eat fish or whatever, he admitted on the, he said, you know what, even though I don't want to, I would have to, I would have to move and follow the science. And my estimation of him went up a million times. And I suddenly now I hold in such high regard, a man who advocates for the opposite diet to what I believe is the correct diet. But I really trust this guy because he's willing to self-sacrifice. And I guess Tofa's touched on some of that with his own story. Uh, But yes, let's follow that. Let's look for politicians who are not in it for themselves and are willing to put us first as they should be. Servants being leaders, the greatest servant being the the greatest leader being the servant of all gentlemen thank you for joining us for a fun discussion for letting me talk about some um uh, contentious things thank you
2: good people thank break you. bad laws never forget
0: <laughs> if you want to buy some merch go to toe pills, pills paid see you guys see you everybody
2: <laughs>
1: see you tomorrow oh matt make sure the studio is ready you're setting me up for something, aren't you? Yeah, just see just to make sure it's ready. I'm coming all the way down. It needs to be ready. All right. <laughs>